Good morning, everybody. We uh, had a great Easter celebration last week in uh, celebrating what we just sang about, the love of God and how it transforms us. And we celebrated a life change through baptism. And uh, Pastor Joel preached a tremendous message uh, on grace that... uh, Grace, uh, God wants us back, that he, he has grace for us, uh, no matter where we are. And many, many people responded. It was just a great week. Uh, saw many people receive grace for the first time and put their trust in Christ for the first time, and many returned uh, to God last week. So I uh, just hope you enjoyed Easter with your church family and uh, hope that uh, we'll continue to be able to pursue God's grace and celebrate uh, what he's done and continues to do in each of us. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the power of grace to bring conviction, but not condemnation when we mess up, when we sin. The power of God's grace to convict us, but not to condemn us when we sin. And there are a short list of things in my life uh, that I would ask for a do-over on. Uh, don't get me wrong, I've messed up on many things in my life. But there's probably a short list if I could go back and say, oh, I just wish I could do that one again. I wish maybe I could not have done this, or I wish I could have started a different pattern 20 years ago in this area, or I wish I could have gone and, uh, you know, uh, said something different than I said on a certain occasion. I probably have a short list of those things. Anybody else have a do-over list that, you know, you could kind of, yeah, those things sometimes are the easiest things to condemn ourselves about, that we can just be like, why did I have to do that, or why did, why did I say that, or why couldn't I have have just done this. Well, one example of that um, is a story that um, I don't know if I've shared it before, but it was years ago. I was in college, and, and my roommate and I were, on a, it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon in North Georgia. Uh, it was early in the year, and it got warmer there way quicker than it gets warmer here in Pennsylvania, especially this year. But we were out behind our dorm, and we were hitting golf balls over a, a creek, and uh, this creek about 100 yards behind our dorm, and so we would stand behind the dorm and just drive golf balls over the creek and into the woods, and so I was, I'm a right, right-handed golfer, and he's a left-handed golfer, so we would rotate literally one ball after the other, and it just was a great way to, to pass time. So we were doing this and enjoying the day, and a family starts coming along. They're walking along the creek, so we take a pause, and we're talking for a while and, and leaning up against some cars that are nearby, parked nearby, just waiting for them, and they go all the way down. And then my roommate steps up, because it was his turn, and he's a lefty, so he swings and doesn't from the time he hit the ball, everything just went into slow motion because he sliced the ball in such a way that the family that was about 150 yards away down that direction, uh, it just was on like a guided missile to, to hit them. And so in my head, uh, I'm screaming, four, no, turn around. I don't know what actually came out, but it was all happening in slow motion. And then as this ball goes, don't you know, I guess we yelled something because they turned and their five-year-old little boy caught it right in the forehead, literally lifted him off his feet and put him flat on his back. The shame in all of this for me is that the first thing that we did, my roommate and I, out of natural instinct, was duck and hide behind the cars that were nearby (laughs) for like two seconds. Then we're like, what are we doing? And we get up and we run down there to where they are. By the time we get there, the boy's dad has his son and just blood just everywhere, just everywhere. And so we're feeling this incredible, like my car's nearby. So we run, I get my keys and we said, we'll load them up. And there's a hospital a few miles away. So we get them loaded in the car. And 
as we get to the hospital, the doctor comes out, you know, and they're looking at him, and they're just having the conversation with the family, but we're there, like, do you know a plastic surgeon? Because he's going to need some reconstructive surgery for his head to look right in the future. And, uh, you know, beyond that, you know, they were saying things about potential brain damage. We don't know if there's internal bleeding or if it's just, we, you know, and so we're just like, ah, you know, and, but what I remember, in the end, as far as we know, the boy turned out fine. It was kind of a miracle. He didn't even need the reconstructive surgery. Uh, God just kind of healed that area beautifully within the next few weeks, and, and uh, I was very thankful um, that all that worked out. But when I look back on that situation, it's obviously a do-over. I would, take, I would do that over <laughs> in a split second if we could have just waited another 30 seconds, you know, uh, before we continued. Um, but what I do remember is this. The dad in that situation, especially both parents, but especially the dad, showed such incredible grace to the two of us. You know, we're just college students, like, not having a care in the world, just out driving golf balls on a Sunday afternoon. And this tragic thing happens, and he just showed so much grace to the two of us. It was almost as if he was as concerned that we would be okay as he was that his son would be okay. And I'll never forget that. I'll never forget the, the way in which he tried to minister to us um, in a time when we needed grace more than anything else. I just need, we needed someone to show us really 11th hour grace. And that's what we felt in, in that very moment. And when I think of that situation, the only reason for me that I would not have it be a do-over is because of the grace that we were shown and, and what I felt like he demonstrated for me that day that I remember to this very day. Sometimes when we think about grace, we think of it as kind of a passive thing. But really the truth is that grace isn't a wimpy thing at all or a passive thing. Grace is a very, very powerful thing. And it changes and shapes us when we are able to receive it. It makes a change in us and has power to work in us. And that's what we're going to focus on today. What kind of power does grace demonstrate when we mess up? When we sin, how does God's power uh, display itself in our lives through his grace? And you may have sung the song if you've grown up in church before, but you may have sung a hymn, Grace That Is Greater Than All Of Our Sin. And so what I want to ask today is I want you to think about, do you really believe that the grace of God is greater than all of your sin? Do you really live in such a way that you have received God's grace, you are receiving God's grace, and you know that it's greater than any sin um, in your life? So as we look at um, this uh, particular story in Scripture today, I'd love it if you'd open up your outlines and you can follow along. As you open inside, the first point is this. God's grace refuses to condemn us. God's grace refuses to condemn us. Now, condemnation is more than just pointing out sin. Condemnation is living under the weight and the shame of the sin that you committed. And being condemned by others uh, feels like our person has been declared a condemned building. A uh, condemned building is something that's unfit or unworthy or unacceptable, uninhabitable. It's unrepairable for people to be in. If you've ever seen a building that's marked condemned, you know at that point the only thing that it's really good for is to be bulldozed. That's uh, what that building, uh, the value of that building. My kids go to Northern, and if you are familiar with the Northern School District, you know that there is a building that sits on the opposite side of the middle school and high school um, that at one point 
many years ago when my mom went to school there for a couple years, it was the high school. And then by the time I had gone to school there, uh, it was, had become the middle school. And now there's a middle school and high school across the street, and it's known as the Sports and Learning Center, the SLC. And let me tell you why. It's known as that because there are four major spokes of that building, and it's a big building. Three of the four spokes of that building are condemned. They are uninhabitable. They are unsafe. They're unusable. And they were built so long ago that the construction of that building is no longer, and it's the age of it, because of the way that it was built and the age of it, it's no longer safe for people to inhabit that building. So the school board has struggled for a long time with what to do with this building. The only parts they can use are the lobby, the gym, and the cafeteria, and the one, one area that's uh, connected to it there. So they use it for sports and extra, you know, as extra space. The problem for the school board is that if they were going to do anything with that building because it's condemned, they literally would have to knock down three-quarters of this massive building, and the expense that would be involved in knocking it down and clearing it, uh, they're not sure that we taxpayers would appreciate uh, that much money being invested in just clearing land. So it's been a long-term debate by what do we do with this massive condemned structure. And no one as a person wants to think of themselves as unrepairable or unfit or unusable because we've, uh, because we've been condemned. And that's why throughout Scripture we see this picture that God paints through Jesus that a new day is possible for us and that this is the message of grace. Grace refuses to condemn us. God's grace refuses to condemn us. You and I, like we're a building that's unfit or unrepairable, God refuses to give us that label of condemned. He just won't do it. So that's why Jesus demonstrates that the ultimate goal of grace is actually restoration. We see that all throughout Scripture. When Jesus demonstrates grace, his goal is restoration of a person so that they can feel fit and worthy and usable by God again. And this morning we're going to look uh, in Scripture at a life of the life of a woman who was totally restored by the grace of God. This was a woman who was caught in adultery. I want you to follow along in John chapter 8, verses 3 through 9. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And I want to take a pause right there for just a moment. There are two important things that you should know about the history of this before we go any further. The first is this. The Pharisees always claimed to be all about the law, that that was their desire to live by the law, to honor God by living by the law. But in this case, they are the accusers of this woman. And what the law actually demanded was that not only the woman who would have been caught in the act of adultery, but also the man would be brought uh, to, to trial in this situation. And we see no evidence in this particular passage that a man was, was brought. Secondly, the law would have also required that there be more than one witness who was present and was also brought into this situation, and there were no witnesses. So what was the real intent uh, here? Was it to carry out the law, or were there other motives? You can process that for just a moment. The second thing is this. Just before this incident, the Pharisees had sent the temple guard... Uh, who were basically, they were under the authority of the temple leaders, and they had sent the temple guard out to arrest Jesus. But the temple guard came back to the Pharisees and said to them, 
we don't think he's guilty of anything. This guy's totally innocent. So they basically went back to their boss and said, we're not arresting him because we don't want to arrest him. We fear the crowds. We think this guy is innocent. And so you got to know that the Pharisees were really upset. So the woman was not their interest in this particular case. Condemning her was just a convenient way for them to condemn Jesus. So let's continue in verse 6. It says, They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down and wrote in the dust. So note that Jesus didn't dismiss the wrong that was done by the woman. He wasn't trying to exonerate her. He says, go ahead, throw the stone if you're here and you're without sin. And Jesus was saying in that moment, only one of the one of us who would be sinless would be worthy to pass judgment. And that la- narrows the list down to one, to God. And what is it that Jesus is writing in the sand in this moment? It just seems odd that in the middle of their questioning, Jesus is just down there writing in the sand with his finger. Well, on that particular day, it was a tradition for anyone who had an accusation brought against them, if they were brought to the temple, if they had violated the law, that the chief priest would come out and in the dust in the temple courtyard, he would write the accusation that was brought against the person and he would also write the name of the person or persons being accused in the dust of the temple court. So it's possible that Jesus was writing not about the law of adultery that had been broken, but it's possible that Jesus was writing about the law of accusation that had been violated, and maybe he was writing the names of the people who were standing there who had violated it in that moment. We don't know. But look at what happens when those who are involved in making this accusation see their own guilt. In verse 9, it says this, When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So the entire crowd was, had left, uh, or they were moving away. And, and the point is this that Jesus was making. We all have sin. As a matter of fact, the, the point that Jesus was making in this moment is that any of you really could have been brought into this circle in this moment and thrown down in front of people to be judged, to be accused. Any one of you here that's holding a stone could be in the place of this particular woman. But more than that, that truth penetrated everyone who was there. Every person who had a stone knew that they weren't immune to sin. And one by one, the Bible says the more mature people knew it first, they dropped their stones and they walked away. And even the woman who was caught in this ugly, ugly sin, she was invited to experience something brand new. And in the middle of her sin, in the middle of her embarrassment that day, the middle of her shame, Jesus meets her with grace and gives her hope for a new day, and he gives her hope for a second chance. So the adulterous woman gets a taste of God's grace. And notice that Jesus did not preach a sermon in that moment on grace. Jesus has some famous sermons in Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus covered particular topics, and there were things that he wanted us to know and to learn. But when it comes to grace in this particular moment, Jesus said very, very little because the point of grace is not to transform your mind. The point of grace is to transform your heart. You can't understand grace until you've experienced it. And Jesus knew that in that particular day, maybe the knowledge of grace would make them a more intelligent person or a better theologian, but that the experience of grace would transform them deeply. 
So the power of grace in your life and mine is not in knowing about it. The power of grace is known when we experience it. I think experiencing grace like this woman experienced in that moment is pretty rare for us. And here's why. We resist what she was forced to confront in those moments. I want you to think about this. She was exposed. Her sin went public in front of everybody who was there. She probably felt totally alone. Uh, She felt the weight of her own shortcomings because she got to step back up onto the balcony and see her life and see the consequences of the choices that she had made that were unfolding right before her, what was going to happen to her. In the, in the moments that followed, she couldn't run from the consequences of her choices. Now, does that sound like something that we would sign up for uh, today, <laughs> to just be thrown into a public situation and our, maybe our deepest sin be exposed in front of people? We would avoid that at all costs. But the reality is this. It's probably the best place for us to truly experience the grace of God. You know, when we're new Christians and we're we're a whole lot better at receiving grace than when we get a little bit further on in our faith. Uh, When we're new Christian, we're just so thankful for the work that God has done in us. We're just so thankful. We see all of the sin in our lives up to that point, and we think, man, God's grace is going to come in. He's going to forgive my sins. He's going to powerfully take care of my past. But what happens when we move further along as a Christian, and our sin becomes habitual, and we begin to do the same, have the same failures over and over again, how quick are we to turn to God's grace and be thankful for it? I think much of the time we think, man, I don't even want to go back to God with that. I feel so ashamed and I feel so guilty and I, maybe I've condemned myself. I have no interest in going back before God and being broken about my sin one more time. Our family just adopted a little girl a few months ago. She's been with us for uh, over just about a year now. And the adoption became official. She's, she's about 16 months old, and her name is now Anne Catherine Jacobs. And it's fun having a little toddler in the house again because our next uh, youngest is seven. And so it's been a little while for us since we've had a little baby in the house 24-7. And she's at that great stage right now where she's running around and just into everything. And so you have to totally bulletproof the house to make sure she stays safe. But one of the things that I noticed is that any time that she falls, hurts herself, uh, gets into something that she knows she shouldn't, um, is sad, uh, runs into something, the very first thing she does is look for mom or dad and come running with her arms up, just crying. And she just wants picked up, loved on, it's going to be okay. She's not thinking about the fact that maybe she made a total mess somewhere or that she did something that she shouldn't or that Um, you know, whatever caused her to be hurting, all she knows is, I want to find mom and dad, mom or dad, and I just want them to pick me up and and tell me it's going to be all right and love me in that moment. And it's just, it's almost funny to see her coming because it's like, I just, somebody scoop me up and love me. I've noticed that my older kids don't do that anymore. Um, I've been thinking about this, you know, like when they do something wrong, they want to get as far away from me as possible. They want to hide, cover up, disguise, do whatever they can to ignore whatever their need is in that particular moment. Uh, and probably the last thing on their mind is to come to mom and dad, arms open, saying, I don't care what I did. I'm so sorry. I just need your love and your forgiveness and your grace right now. That's not, that ain't happening so much as they get a little bit older. And I think the same thing happens to us as we walk along in our journey 
with Christ. Because when we're infants and when we're young, it's no wonder Jesus tells us we should come to him like children. Because when we come with the heart of a child, we come to a God who we know loves us, who we know has grace for us, and our arms are open, and we're just like, God, just pick me up and take care of me right now. I'm in the middle of my mess, and I need your grace right now. I need your love right now. I need to know your forgiveness. And yet as we move further along with God, you know, we start to think about the way we would feel if someone had sinned against us as many times as we sin against God. Or we start to think about the voices we hear in our heads when we're just, we've had it with someone and, you know, I don't even want to hear it. You have done that so many times. You have offended me so many times. I can't even, so we don't want to hear that stuff. And, and we've spoken words of condemnation to other people and we've heard words of condemnation to ourselves. So as we grow in, in our faith, sometimes I think we automatically impose that picture on God that he's just angry with us. And he's just sick of our sin. He's just sick of us coming back to him with the same things over and over again. And so we paint God in a light as we grow in our faith that, that he wouldn't want us to run back to him. He wouldn't want us to come to him in the middle of our mess. And I think the tipping point for most of us to accept God's grace or be willing to, to go to God in that way is when we realize that God's grace is really our only good option, maybe our only option in that moment. It's only in those moments that we become willing to surrender to it. We might be going through our whole life and finally we get thrown out into the middle of a crowd and our sin is exposed. And for the first time in a long time, we're like, oh my goodness, I have no other option but to surrender to God's grace right now. I can't hide it. I can't push it away. I can't run. I just have to surrender. And in that moment, the only way that grace can be seen as our only good option is if we understand the difference between condemnation and brokenness. Because something that's condemned needs to be destroyed. It has no value. And if we've condemned ourselves or we feel like maybe God's condemning us or others are condemning us, it's going to be really challenging for us to go to God authentically. But something that's been broken can be fixed and can be repurposed again and can find great use by God in God's kingdom and can be restored. So what does it look like to be broken? I want you, as I go over these few things that it looks like to be broken, to think about your own life and think, when is the last time I was actually broken about my own sin or about my fault in any situation? Brokenness lays aside the right to be right. When you're broken, you're not defensive about what you've done. You're not trying to hide it. You just lay down your right to be right. Brokenness willing expose, willingly exposes your life to God's truth. It says, God, I don't even care to try to defend why I'm right in this situation. What's your truth in this situation? Because even if it hurts, that's what I need right now. Even if it's not at all what I want, it's what I know I need in this moment. Brokenness accepts loving correction. And brokenness gives you a balcony view of your own sin. And it makes you say, I need to own it. God, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against someone else. And I need to own this. I can't act as if it's not there. I can't ignore it anymore. And when you're truly broken, it opens you up to life-giving grace. And then God uses his grace to give you the power to change coming through that. Condemnation, either self-condemnation or by others, only, doesn't bring repentance. It only brings regret and shame. But here's the good news. 
for you today. The good news is this. God isn't mad at you. God's not mad at you for your sin. He loves you. He refuses to condemn you. Scripture says it over and over. He refuses to condemn you for your sin. Recently, I heard a story from one of our church family members after Christmas, and they were telling me about how their little girl had a favorite Christmas ornament that hung on the tree, and as they were getting all the Christmas ornaments out and decorating the tree as a family, that her favorite ornament dropped somehow and broke into a lot of pieces. And it She was so upset about it, and of course they're saying, honey, we'll get you another one, we'll get you a new ornament that will be, you know, and she said, I don't want a new one, I want this one. And so the mom and dad took the time to get out the glue and take it into the kitchen and try to work to put it back together, but there were a lot of little pieces that had kind of shattered, and so when they got it all back put together, the dad took it into his little girl, and he said, honey, uh, here is, uh, here's your ornament. He said, sorry it's not as perfect as it was before. And the little girl looked at her and him and said, Daddy, it doesn't have to be perfect for me to love it. It doesn't have to be perfect for me to love it. And I think that is such a perfect picture of God's love for us. God knew before we, were even, we even existed that we wouldn't be perfect. And he said, they don't have to be perfect for me to love them. They're going to mess up. They're going to fail. And he knew we need his grace. God refuses to condemn us. And he offers us a key ingredient for life, ch- for life change, and that's grace. Look at these three passages of Scripture. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. That was not God's purpose in sending Jesus. Condemnation was not his purpose. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. When we choose to condemn ourselves or when we choose to condemn other people, we rob the gospel of its power. We steal the power source out of the gospel because Jesus died so that we wouldn't be condemned. Jesus is our advocate. He's not our accuser. In this situation where the woman who was caught in in this act of adultery was thrown in front of the crowd, was Jesus her condemner, her accuser, or was he her advocate? He was her advocate. He was the grace giver for this woman. And when you're walking with Jesus, there is always more grace for you. There is always more grace If you've ever felt the weight of repeated failure in your life and you've wondered if you've exhausted God's grace, if you can really go back to God one more time for more grace, uh, I want you to look at this next quote in your outline. Pastor Sean and I were working on the message this week together. He's preaching over at Good Hope Road. And uh, he found this quote in his journal from a couple of years ago. And he couldn't remember who the quote was from or if he had wrote it himself, written it himself. So I told him I'm going to give credit to him this morning for this quote. And we'll assume this was from Pastor Sean. It says this, each of us is in greater need of grace than we have ever known. And at the same time, there is more grace available to us than we could ever exhaust. We'll never know in the day-to-day the need of grace in each moment that we live, our full need of grace. But the beautiful news about it is that there's more grace available to us than we could ever take advantage of or we could ever exhaust. You know, sometimes we get this picture that God is so sick of our sin that his hands are up in the air and that he's just saying, enough, I'm done with you. I'm sick of the sin in your life. I'm sick of you coming back to me with this over and over again. And maybe we've heard that voice from someone else in our life. When we've failed, someone else has just given us that, look, I'm done, enough. There is no more grace for you. And we get this idea that that's God's, God's posture towards us. But the truth is, we never see that posture from God in scripture or from Jesus. We never see it. 
The posture that we see from Jesus to us is always his hands down, always extending his hand, extending his hands to the woman caught in adultery, saying, there is grace for you. Extending his hands to the tax collector, reaching down, saying, there's grace to you for the leper, for the sick, for the sinner, for the Pharisee, Nicodemus, for Peter when he lacked faith and was sinking instead of walking on water. There's grace for you. I'm reaching down to you. For Thomas, when he doubted and lacked faith, Jesus said, I'm reaching to you. There's grace for you. To those who mocked him and crucified him, when he looked up to his father and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He said, there's grace for you. And to you and I who sit here today, no matter what our concept is or our picture is of God, the truth is, if it looks like this, that's not a true picture of who our God is. Our God is a God with his hands extended to us. Wherever you are today, no matter how many times you've repeated that sin, God's saying there is grace for you today. So God, grace, the grace of God refuses to condemn us, and it instead offers us a way through our brokenness to be set free, a way for us to have a second chance. And that's the second part of our outline today. God's grace refuses to condemn, and then God's grace invites us to repent. God's grace invites us to repent. Now, when you hear the word repent, how many of you think of something like this? You think of a street preacher. Uh, maybe you think of signs that you've seen or the side of a barn on the way to Lancaster where it says repent. And how do we hear the word repent? We hear it kind of in a, you, you're out of line. Again, God with his hands raised. I'm sick of your sin. Repent. That's the way we hear it. I think that's the way our culture portrays it. And I think, sadly, we miss the whole beauty of repentance. So I hope that before we're done today, you have a new picture of repentance that doesn't involve this brother. But Jesus means something so much more than just give up your secret sins and find religion when we hear the word repent. Jesus means something so much more important and so much more life-changing in that. And in the story of the woman, when everyone dropped their stones and left the scene and Jesus continued to engage with this woman and he spoke some very powerful and important words to this woman. And imagine again that moment. I want to take you just into that place. It's just the woman and Jesus. There's still a crowd maybe around the periphery, but in the center of that circle, it's just this woman and Jesus. And they're standing there alone, the two of them. And I want you to think about her relief I want you to think about her, her disbelief about what had just happened in that moment. Her emotions, because a few seconds earlier, she was prepared for a bunch of stones to start to be pelted at her person, and eventually that was the way she was going to die in just a few moments. And her certain death sentence had just been lifted by Jesus. Picture yourself there, what she must have felt as Jesus spoke these words to her. In John chapter 8, verse 10, Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So Jesus doesn't condemn her, but he very, very, very clearly tells her, It's time for a change. Your life is due for a change. Grace gives you a chance to change. 
and start again. It just doesn't let you off the hook um, and tell you that your sin isn't a big deal. Grace comforts you in that moment when your sin is exposed. Grace comforts you, but it also brings conviction and says it's time for a new life. It's time for a change. And all the Gospels have a common theme. When Jesus talked about his kingdom throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it was this, repent and believe. Repent and believe. And this was the message of John the Baptist, but it was, and it was also the message of Jesus. To fully understand its meaning, though, you have to know what the words repent and believe would have meant to a first century person who would hear those words. Because if we hear those words through our context today, we hear those words almost in a way that's condemnational. You need to repent and you need to believe. And when we hear them that way, we miss out on the picture of what Jesus was painting. N.T. Wright uh, tells a story of the Jewish historian Josephus. And Josephus lived in Jesus' time, just after Jesus' time. He was not only a historian, but at the time he was uh, a young army commander. And Josephus was told by Rome to peaceably put down a Jewish rebellion that was going on in the time. And when he approached the rebel leader of this rebellion, when Josephus approached this rebel leader, he said this, he said, I went and confronted this rebel and I told him to give up his style of revolution and trust me for my plan and my agenda. And guess what the Greek words were that Josephus spoke to this revolution leader? Repent and believe. Give up your way of approaching this revolution and embrace my way. Repent and believe. Same words that were written in Greek in the New Testament about John the Baptist. Same words that Jesus used when he said these words to many people. Repent and believe. Josephus, of course, was not saying to this uh, rebellion leader, give up your sins and have a religious experience with me. That is not what Josephus was saying to this man. And we often assume that Jesus' words, repent and believe, are simply centered on confession of sin. They were centered. Part of it was about confession of sins. But when we hear the words repent and believe, we have to hear the full context and the full weight of these words, which Jesus was basically looking at this woman and saying, give up your agenda. Give up the pursuit, the way you're pursuing your life. You're pursuing finding satisfaction and peace and meaning in life through adultery and, and whatever other situations are going on. Jesus is saying, I have a different life for you. Repent, turn a different direction, and believe. Go and sin no more was an invitation to give up her way of doing things, to give up her agenda and trust in Jesus' plan and his agenda instead. But sometimes we're so caught up in, in our own bad choices and honestly, sometimes we're so caught up in our own desire to control our lives and our decision that we miss out or we don't hear God's invitation for us to repent and believe. How many of you have ever had your dog on a chain outside of your house? You've owned a dog and you've had to put them on a chain outside. Anybody? Cord, wire, ch we're not reporting you, it's okay. You're allowed to do this. Okay. So we have an invisible fence now, but for years I had a dog on a chain and sometimes that chain would be attached to a wire that they could, you know, explore more or have more freedom in the yard that way. I don't think there's a dog on the planet that can keep themselves untangled when they're out on, on a chain. I just don't think, I, I've never owned a, known a dog to have that ability. And uh, the dog always seems to get himself tangled up uh, and it's not, 
I'm not sure what a dog thinks in this situation. Um, you know, when we get tangled up in something, if there's a tangle, we try to work our way back through it. I think dogs just think, if I keep spinning around or rolling around, somehow naturally, I'm sure this will untangle me. And so you come home, and you find your dog, like, hog-tied or calf-tied around both legs. It's around their neck. They can barely get out a bark because they can't breathe anymore because they've tangled themselves up so badly. And they just look pathetic in that moment, you know? And what do you do as the dog owner? You love the dog. You want the dog to experience freedom. So you go over, and for the hundredth time, you carefully help the dog unwrap itself, and he's just there <laughs> looking at you like, thank you. You know, we do this continually and consistently, and yet I believe sometimes it's the exact same way with our sin. We get tangled up in our sin, and we are just so ridiculously bound up And God is available, wants to free us, wants us to experience freedom. But we're over there, and we're just like, I'm good. We look pathetic. We're totally tied up. Probably not only God, but a lot of other people in our life see that our sin has got us fully entangled. We're a disaster, but we don't want any help. We're good over here. We'll just make our way, hopping around, all tangled up, you know. And we miss the opportunity for freedom that God wants us to have. And I believe that God loves us too much to allow us to stay stuck in our junk. He sees us standing there looking ridiculous, all caught up in our sin, that we can't untangle ourselves, and he knows that the only answer is for us to cry out in repentance and just say, Jesus, I'm a mess. Would you come untangle me today? Would you come help me find some freedom today? There is no other way for me to find freedom other than you coming and untangling this sin that I'm in the middle of right now. And when we're tangled, it can feel so confusing about how to let Jesus free us. But the Bible says the only way to be free when we're tangled up is repentance. And on the back of your outline, if you flip it over, I put on there four signs of a repentant heart. Four signs of a repentant heart. The first is this, awareness. If you're repentant, first you become aware of your sin. You become aware of the pain that you've brought to others through your disobedience to God. The second part is this, your awareness leads to regret. And then you realize that you've hurt people, people that you wanted to love, you've hurt them, and you start to feel the weight of the hurt that you're causing to other people. And then our regret brings us to a place where we're willing to confess. And when we confess, the Bible says that Jesus is faithful when we confess our sins to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he begins that untangling process with us when we confess our sins. And when we admit that we're wrong and we ask for forgiveness, when we speak our, aloud our faults and we admit the hurt that we've caused other people by our own sin, then God brings our sin into the light. And when my sin is brought into the light and it's exposed to the light, when I allow God, when I come before him authentically and I allow my sin to be exposed, then the light can do miraculous, it's miraculous healing in your heart. But that's the only way that you can truly experience healing is when your sin is is allowed to be brought into God's light, you can begin to experience grace and forgiveness and healing. And then confession and forgiveness make the way for change. And change is the one that often trips us up because we get discouraged because change is where we give up our agenda and our way and we trust in Jesus' way wholly. Have you ever had your kids come to you and maybe there's been a conflict in the house and, uh, You've told them, I think you need to say, I'm sorry, 
Um, and then they come up and they kind of walk by you and half-heartedly mumble, sorry, oh, sorry. Or they go to a sibling and they're like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. And I always like to stop in that moment and say, all right, that was a good first step. What are you sorry for? <laughs> and then they're like, come on, took all that energy for just for me to unauthentically mumble, I'm sorry, and now you're going to make me go further with this. And so then after that, you know, what are you sorry for? And the reason why it's important for them to know why they're sorry is because they have to realize that repentance is not just about smoothing something over or saying certain words. It's about loving obedience. It's about heart change. How are you going to live differently? And so an authentic act of repentance leads to change when we allow God to do a work in us. In fact, Jesus teaches that love and obedience are so closely tied. Look at John chapter 14. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Grace means that God always loves us. God's love for us is unconditional, and it's consistent. But our obedience does not determine how much God loves us. He will always love us no matter how much we obey. The real question is this, how much do we love God? And how do we love God? Because our love for God is measured in our obedience. Our love for God is quantified in the choices that we make. Because the kind of obedience that God wants is really our expression of love to him. Our affection is often felt most deeply when we're broken over our sin and disobedience. And an invitation to repent is actually an invitation to love God fully. I want you to think about this. When you hear the words repent, God is saying, I want you to come repent, confess your sins, be made right, so that you can express your love back to me and change, and I can transform you. Repentance is about transformation. It's about change. It's about us telling God we love him back. That's repentance. It's not condemnational. It's not judgmental, it's transformational. And that's why God longs for us to repent so that we can live life his way and not our own way anymore. In Daybreak Lingo, Grace says, come as you are, but don't stay that way. Fall in love with Jesus. Let him transform you. Let him change you when you become authentic with him. Don't control your own life anymore. Let God's grace be the power source in your life. Look at Hebrews 4.16. It says, let us then approach the throne of grace would you, with confidence. Would you circle the word grace there? Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find what? Grace. Circle it again. Find grace to help us in our time of need. God's throne of grace is where we're supposed to come when we've sinned. It's like Annie with her arms up. So that what? When we have our arms up, God can reach his arms down and authentically pick us up and say, there's grace for you right now. Let's approach him with confidence like a child would approach a parent so that we can find grace to help us when? In our 11th hour, in our time of need, every day when we need God's grace. You know, we don't know what happened to the adulterous woman after her grace encounter with Jesus. We don't read anything more about her in Scripture. But I have to imagine that this is a woman who is never the same again. 
God met her and invited her to find grace in her most desperate time of need. You think about it. If she found grace in her worst moment, imagine how much easier it was for her to go to God in lesser moments when she needed grace. She had grace impact her life in her lowest place. And from then on, I believe her dependence on God and her relationship with Jesus was never the same. Repentance opens my heart to the real miracle of grace. And the real miracle of grace is not that I accept Jesus. The real miracle of grace is that he accepts me, even though I'm such an incredible sinner. That's the real miracle. And I want you to process this today. Have you received God's grace? Are you living as a person who daily receives God's grace? Maybe you're here today and you've never received God's grace before. You're still on your journey towards the cross, and today is your day to say, God, I want to receive your grace today. I want to be transformed by your grace today. But maybe you experienced God's grace when you came to Christ, and if you were honest, you would say, I've not truly experienced the grace of God in my life in a long time. When I just looked at that repentance thing, it's been a long time since I've humbled myself that honestly before God and continued to receive his grace, to sustain me, continue to allow his grace to be my power source that transforms and changes me. So if you're here today and you're tangled, you're all tangled up, and you're trying to say, I'm good, maybe you need to let Jesus come and set you free. Or maybe if you've had this picture of God, hands up, condemning, sick of your habitual sin, Maybe you need to give it, get a new picture of your Father in heaven leaning down to pick you up in your worst place because he has grace for you. I'm going to pray in just a minute, and then we're going to listen to a song and just give a few minutes to soak in God's message of grace to you today. Would you pray with me? Jesus, no matter how many times we fall, you pick us back up again. And though, God, we might suffer condemnation from others and we might suffer condemnation even from ourselves, thank you that your word says you never condemn us. That wasn't your purpose. You offer us freedom from our sin and our hurt. And Father, we don't know why you give us so many second chances. We certainly know we don't deserve them. But we are so comforted today to know that your grace is inexhaustible. And today at the same time, Lord, we want to confess, confess that we're convicted. We're convicted when we think that, such, that a loving God could extend so much grace to us in our place of need. So we cry out to you today, God, for rescue. And we repent. And we give up our agenda for yours today so that we might fully know your love and your life. In Jesus' name, amen.
We want to take the next couple minutes and respond to what God has spoken to our hearts today. Uh, A couple ways that you might want to think about doing that today. The first is if you need someone to pray with you uh, in the next couple moments, you can head out the back doors and down the hallway to the left. You'll see the prayer signs there. Someone will listen to you and pray with you and pray for you today for a few moments. But today, uh, if the rest of you would take out your response cards, I want you to uh, respond on one of two levels today. First of all, I want you to remember that God's grace refuses to condemn you. And instead, it invites you to be cleansed by his forgiveness. So God is granting you a new day, and then he gives you the power of Jesus to make a break from your old ways and to adopt his agenda instead of your own. And if you're here today and you've never received God's grace, you don't believe you've ever fully embraced it, and said, God, I need the power of your grace at work in me, you might want to write that down or ask for that prayer today. Or if you're here today and you say, it's been a long time. I have trusted my past to the grace of God, but I'm not very good at trusting my present to God and being a recipient of his grace every day uh, to sustain me and empower me to change as I repent and am honest before God. Then maybe that's uh, your response today. But let's take these next couple moments and allow God to speak to you as you respond to him.